This is Trainer Talk, presented by Fasig Tipton on the Horse Racing Radio, Horse Network. Racing Radio Network. Trainer Todd Fletcher has reached the stratosphere. It was all have another for Doug O'Neill. Moon over Miami for Bill Mott. 3,000 for trainer Mark Cassie. Trainer D-Way Lucas, a six win. And Bob Baffert with another incredible milestone. But it was all for Scott McGee. Win number 1,000 for the great Trevor McCarthy. Here's 2,000 for Nick Zito. Steve Asperson is now North America's all-time leading trainer. Now, here's Mike Penna. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Trainer Talk, presented by Fasig Tipton. This, of course, is the show trainers listen to, and you are listening right here on the Horse Racing Radio Network. Mike Penna, Baron of the Backstretch, happy to have you in the starting gate with me for the next hour on Sirius 162 XM 207, streaming worldwide at horseracingradio.net and available anywhere you get your podcasts each and every week. Six days ago, on February 15th, my guest on today's show stood in the Gulfstream Park Winter Circle celebrating the first win of her young training career. But the path to that special moment has been anything but a straight line since coming to the United States from England in 2004. She's honed her skills working with some of the best, Jonathan Shepard, Wesley Ward, Jerry Hollendorfer, Todd Pletcher, and Richard Mandela. But it was a tragic day in July of 2022 that would ultimately lead her to that triumphant moment last week at Gulfstream Park. Please join me in welcoming trainer Lauren Robson to Trainer Talk presented by Fasig Tipton. Lauren, congratulations. Thank you so much. I am so excited to hear your story, and it was so great to see you in the winner circle last week. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm sure it was. How did you celebrate afterwards? Um, actually... We went for dinner with Johnny, Leona, uh, Ron Anderson, his agent, um, and Johnny's mom, and Leona's dad, ex-trainer Leo O'Brien. So that was nice. Yeah, John Velasquez was aboard for that special win, and his lovely wife, and uh, those are special connections. Let me start the conversation, Lauren, by rewinding the clock to 1244 Eastern on Thursday afternoon when Gibran came through the stretch on his way to victory, and a victory you will always remember. Gibran to the top of the stretch has the lead off cover into the attack legendary Phantom. Running home at the rail, Tapouche down the center in Canavero. There's an eighth of a mile to go. Gibran shaking up for the drive, kicking away again. Legendary Phantom is back to second and is making no further impression as Gibran and John Velasquez on their way to a clear and convincing second race victory. Second legendary Phantom, spoken bluntly, rolled home from the center, got up for third. It's closer for fourth, either Canavero or Tapouche in 55. And three. Pete Aiello with the call. Clear and convincing is the way he described it, Lauren, and I'm sure that was just fine with you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Johnny got him out of the gate nice and sharp, and he got very comfortable. So he he did everything right and had a nice confidence boost in race, too. No pressure. He didn't even hit the horse, so that was a fun way for him to break his maiden. As you were listening to that call here on the radio what was going through your mind i was just like because i ride the horse and i know him so well and i i know he's speedy so when he was 
getting clear like that, I was like, wow, we're good. Like, I felt pretty confident. And um, I know it was going to take a really fast one to come running at him from where he was turning in. He shows uh, you those just, same qualities in the morning that he showed in the afternoon? Yeah, he's always worked really well. He's got natural speed, and um, he was a little aggressive training. So, you know, I, I just kind of settled him down best I can. But when I let him work, he, yeah, he'll roll. <laughs> you, you've been part, I mentioned some of the big names and some of the big trainers you've been around. You've been part of some really special moments in their careers. Describe what this moment was like for you. Yeah, it was really special. I mean, we've had a kind of a crazy last couple of years and just, you know, going out and taking out my license just to do it myself with a couple was a little, I don't know, just something I thought I would like to do. And uh, it was nice to be feel like you're getting paid back for all the time and just really special, just um, exciting to finally get the win. How many horses do you have in training? I only have two right now. Okay. Is the plan to keep everything small, or do you want to try and grow this thing and be more like a, a Todd Pletcher or a, a <laughs> Richard Mandela? No. I mean, maybe a Mandela. He always kept things small. But, yeah, I wouldn't want to have big numbers this day and age, and I just I feel like I'm too particular and hands-on, and I just don't feel like I would have the mind to have all that going on and trying to deal with help and all the other stuff we have these days and um i just enjoy the horses as individuals and i feel like that would be my niche and try to keep a little boutique operation and i would enjoy it more that way i think you have known hall of fame jockey john velasquez for a long time and that's a wonderful relationship that you have with him how cool is it to be able to give him a leg up on your first winner yeah it was brilliant i was excited when he was available to ride and um, he just did typical Johnny style, confident, just, yeah, it was special because we, you know, we've known each other, Johnny, Leona and his family for a long time. And, you know, Rex to riches, he rode her in the Belmont. Um, so that was a really special part of my career too. And, um, yeah, they became great friends. So that would made it even more special. We'll talk more about Rags to Riches later in the program. Of course, you were around Rags to Riches quite a bit when you were working with Todd Pletcher. We'll get to that part of the story. Okay. Um, but, Lauren, the other cool part of Gibran winning, not just your first career winner in the program, it'll show your name as the owner. That's not the case. He raced in your name. But tell me about the owners of Gibran. Yeah, so a good friend of mine, Ahmed Aldersain, He's the manager for Nasa Baresli. Um, so he's the first foal out of their mare, Rumal. Um, and, you know, they went to Munnings, which was a pretty big move for the first foal. And they're super excited because the mare's, you know, a nice type of mare. She didn't do a lot on the racetrack, but she always showed some talent. Um, she's got a golden sense yearling, and she's got a McLean's music on the way, and she's going to. Um, golden lad so that's exciting for her and that made it really special for them and I'm glad that we could do that for, for those guys and for the mayor and they're wonderful people you know they've trusted me and given me a shot so very thankful for that you had to wait a few months to get this first career win under your belt you saddled your first horse I guess it was in September of last year 
Um, but it's mm-hmm. not like you were running 30, 40, 50 horses a week and going 0 for 40 leading up to this win. Uh, you hadn't mm-hmm. settled that many. But what was the weight like as you were trying to break through? Well, I've tried to be cautious. You know, you you, know, you want to be a little aggressive, but you also want to develop your horses and hope that you, you know, you get to keep them when you drop them for claiming price. You know, you always uh, worry about it. I'm, I'm very happy that I got to keep them who didn't get claimed. and But I felt giving them a little class relief was going to, you know, give them some confidence. And um, that's the way it is over here. You know, in England, we don't have to do that. So it's a little harder to develop them here thinking, you know, if you be aggressive, there's a good chance they'll get claimed. So um, just it was fun to get that horse, you know. We tried a couple different things, and he wasn't really, I don't think, a dirt horse. So he handles it. I think he could run on the dirt, but I just felt he liked that tighter surface. Um, He worked really well in Zapita. I just felt, you know, shortening him up on the, on the tapita would be what he likes. You're also able to do all of this and celebrate this special moment alongside your husband, Rudy, a former jockey. Um, and a couple of years ago, it didn't necessarily look like that might be the case, but now you're able to enjoy these moments together. Take me back to July of 2022 and walk me through the past couple of years and how it led you to this point. Yeah, so... Myself and Rudy were in Ocala, and we were working together, breaking and pre-training horses, and I kind of liked that area and thought we'd just keep doing that, you know, some horses for the sales. And um, Rudy's an excellent horseman, brilliant rider. Um, he'd been through a lot with, you know, as from a jockey to, you know, the two-year-old sales, breaking and training. And he taught me a lot about babies, which... You know, I had broke babies before and been on the track, but he just has a special touch. And so he really taught me a lot. And um, just a horrible, freaky accident that he had one morning and just landed the wrong way and broke his neck. And, you know, he's down on the track and I I wasn't on that set. They came to get me and he's laying there and he said, look, I broke my neck and I'm paralyzed. And I was like, well, you don't know that. I said, that can be temporary. And unfortunately, he's right. Um, he's now a quadriplegic, but it's really sad, but it, he's also very strong. And it's, like, amazing to see that mindset. And it just kind of drives you to do more and make him proud, you know? You were described in the article about your first win, or described, you were quoted in the article as saying, this is fun for me and my husband. He comes out in the morning to watch the horses train, and it keeps him involved. So what what has it meant for him and his recovery to be around horses all the time and, you know, doing it with you? Yeah, it's huge for him. He doesn't like to spend a day, not leave the house, and the horses just put him in a good mindset. Like, that's all he's ever known is horses. And not only he was very successful with them, he's, like, was a real hands-on just you know such um compassion for the horses and he you know likes to do everything the right way and see them develop and he enjoys it you know and he feels you know i ask him for advice and he enjoys that and you know watches them progress and yeah he he's he's had such a brilliant brilliant eye over the years 
like anyone at the sales would tell you how sharp he was at picking horses out and brilliant at all angles. And, you know, I'm lucky to have him to help advise me and hoping to get him back to the sales at some point and get him back in the game looking at horses. And um, he actually has a really nice horse out there, Bo Cruz, which he, the last year he did the sales, he bought as a yearling and he's been pretty nice. He just started back the other day. It was his first start off a layoff and he ran a good third in the fairgrounds, the horses with Al Stoll. So that's another thing which is big for Rudy. You know, it's it's exciting to see these young horses develop. Are you getting on all your horses in the morning? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I get on my own and mostly breeze them myself. And um, I feel it's a big edge. You know, you can feel everything and do, you know, change it up if you feel the need. And, yeah, I enjoy getting on my own still. What a wonderful advantage, and I don't even know if that's the right word, Lauren, but a, a wonderful perk for you to have with your husband being there to watch the horses breeze as you are aboard those horses in the morning. You get to be aboard them, and you know what you're feeling underneath you, but he, he's obviously a highly accomplished um, individual in the sport who has uh, a wonderful eye for a horse, as you just described, and now he gets to watch from that perspective. So the two of you together, when you when you come together and you start putting thoughts together on these horses, that's a powerful combination, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know, it's just the start of it. As he gets stronger and back into traveling and stuff, I think we could only get better. You know, I can't wait to get him back out there and to the sales. And yeah, I mean, he's just brilliant eye, even from. The chair, he sits at the mile pole in the tent at the top of the grandstand, and, you know, he sees everything. It's surprising, like, he, he'll point things out. I'm like, wow, yeah, I mean, he, he doesn't miss much. He's still got great eyes. When do you hope you might be able to have him back traveling with you again? Well, the two-year-old sales start in March. Um, he said he probably won't do March, but he's hoping to make it to the April sale up there in OBS in Ocala. And, you know, he said eventually had like I don't know if it happened this year or but soon enough like he'd like to go in on a horse with me and or whoever else might want to join in and have a couple maybe buy and maybe try to kind of pinhook through the races get them started sell them on and you know have people confident that we do right by our horses and you know try to make a little business out of that and have fun with it that's an incredible story and Lauren Robson celebrating that first career win last Thursday at Gulfstream Park. And when you listen to her talk and when, when you hear about the experience she has in just a little bit, you're going to realize this is probably just scratching the surface. This first one is going to be one of many for Lauren and her husband and the entire team um, going forward. Lauren, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, how was Lauren Robson first introduced to horses and to horse racing? Um. So, wow, going back, I think I was four years old. I rode my first horse in England. Um, my parents were a little bit into them, but more so my aunt had horses, and I used to go up and stay with her, and she had me a pony, and I did some, like, Jim Connor little shows and stuff. And um, well, my uncle owned some racehorses, my father's brother, and so kind of got into that. And, um, you know, just did had some ponies and little shows, jumping, some um, cross-country, things like that. And then I, at a yard that I kept one of my ponies, I met some 
people and they had some racehorses, X racehorses, but the the man Alan Dickman, he was an ex jump jockey and you know, he was going back to training point to pointers, which is amateur steeplechase. So I started to go there. I was still at school on the weekends and they were teaching me that and kind of got the bug of going faster and thoroughbreds and that was it. Kind of went that direction and then he went to train on the flat under rules and I left home up in Durham in the north of England just an hour and a half to Yorkshire and it was a town called Malton, a real racing town and so I went with him and he taught me a lot, the great foundation and kind of went from there. Was there ever a point when you considered doing something other than working with horses for, for a career? No, not at all. Not at all. Both my parents are school teachers and um, I didn't <laughs> like school much. So as soon as I got opportunity, school was over, high school, I was out. I was straight to the horses. What did your parents <laughs> think of that decision? Well, they weren't super thrilled at first, but then they saw my passion for it and they figured, well, just let her do something she likes. Hopefully she can do some good with it. <laughs> was the plan initially to maybe become a jockey or did you think all along that you wanted to maybe try the training side of things? Um, Kind of a little bit of both. Um, I enjoyed the racing. Like I enjoyed riding and I would love to have been like a jockey, but I was probably a little tall to be thinking to ride on the flat. Um, pretty lightweight. And so I did do some amateur racing, like point to point and rode in a few steep of those races. Basically it's a steeplechase and they make a course out in the middle of fields and places and put some rails up and fences. And it's a little hairy, scary, but I started to do a bit of that. And then um, it wasn't that long till I came to America. So then that was that. Yeah, I'll never understand the the steeplechase side of things. I I think I told you before we started the show that I'm very close friends with Sean Clancy, himself a champion steeplechase jockey, and he and I mm -hmm. would talk for hours about some of the stories that he had and some of those experiences. And then I watch on television, see the you know, or in person, and see the the jockeys going over the jumps. And my goodness, I just wonder to myself, as somebody who's never ridden a horse, why would you mm -hmm. want to try that? <laughs> yeah. They're a different breed, those jump jockeys, that's for sure. <laughs> you said you felt the need for speed with the thoroughbreds. How much different is yeah. it when you're aboard a thoroughbred as opposed to the, the slower-paced steeplechase point-to-point oh. -point horses? Um, a little different. You know, the steeplechases are big, strong horses. They're, they're, I always enjoyed riding them because they're a lot horse to sit on. Um, and, I, you know, I actually never... At first, thought I'd go into the flat, and I loved the steeplechasing. But you know, you just go that direction, and you know, you just see the pedigrees and the class of these flat horses, and then you get to feel them. You know, a fast horse, what it feels like, and it's, I guess, it's like driving a fancy car. Like you feel that power, and you kind of want more. It's a little addictive. <laughs> yeah, we always hear that, and John Velasquez has told me this story before that you know, jockeys during a race have to make these split second decisions and they have to do it so quickly and they're in a very confined tight space most of the time when they're doing this and it's not just themselves that they're concerned about it's the other riders around them that they're trying to keep safe you know as well um how about for you as a steeplechase 
or point-to-point person. Do they go through, those jockeys go through the same thing? Yeah, yeah, and I didn't, you know, ride for a big stable or anything. I just rode some maiden races, so it wasn't like I was on some old gentleman in the ladies' races. I was in these maidens and these crazy-looking people with beards, and, <laughs> and they were pretty rough and ready. Like, you had to be every man for himself. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed it, but I never thought I would be big at that. I don't, I mean, I was, I guess, brave enough, but not, like, outrageously wild like some of those guys so yeah i mean i you know thought about getting around there safely not just all out and you know but i enjoyed it um yeah tell me about coming to the u.s in 2004 and that decision yeah so i was just in malton and i had worked for a few different trainers in in england there in yorkshire um and I was just kind of, you know, young, free spirit, and I was told about America, and like a lot of people had gone there, you know, I was working for Simon Magni, and he told me, well, I know some people out there, you know, if you want to go, I could probably get it set up for you, so I was like, well, that sounds good, so got a visa sorted out and headed out, worked for Neil Drysdale, fellow Englishman, my first job out here. And that was it. It was supposed to be a year and a half visa. And like a lot of us that came out here, keep extending it. And next thing you know, we're set out here. How long did you work with Neil? Um, Not that long, just a few months, really. And then I felt like going east. So I had been um, a neighbor of David Duggan. He's a great friend of mine, trains in New York, and his wife, Lara. And he was there at the time in Hollywood Park working for Owen Hardy. And I remember him taking me and showing me he had a big map of the world and a map of America in the tack room. And he was pointing out, like, Kentucky, Florida. He's like, oh, you know, there's a lot of English and Irish and um, European people there, and it's fun. They kind of go on a circuit out there. And I was like, oh, sounds interesting. So met some other people and connections and headed out east. So I think I took a job for Stanley Hoff first and then Rick Violet, just galloping, and that was the start of the East Coast tour. Yeah, yeah, following your love of horses all over the United States after coming from England. And it it sounds like even though you said you were a free spirit and you said, I'm going to come to the U.S. and and try this and let's see where this goes, you, you at least had enough people that you had been in contact with and knew that had that had made the move or had or were already here where I, I bet you, you had that little bit of a safety net anyway, where you could always rely on somebody if, if you needed to, right? Yeah, for sure. I actually didn't know that many people when I first got here, but okay. you meet them and, and you, you know, you just get friends right away. You have a lot of the mutual friends and stuff and you just kind of click and yeah, a lot of those early people I'm really good friends with still. And yeah, so it wasn't far. You met somebody from home, and yeah, it was very. Who, who were some of the people, Lauren, that helped you most in those early days, twenty years ago, when you were really just getting started here in the U.S.? Um, well, David Mia is a good friend of mine, and I've worked at the sales a bunch with him. He was one of the first people I met, also English, um, out in California, and you know those kind of people just give you good advice and. Um, 
when I headed east, um, I met good friends like Michelle Nevin. She's an Irish girl. She's a great trainer. Um, people like that, and that my like the job that I was kind of ended up in that I learned the most. Um, you know, I worked for some really good people. Like Jonathan Shepard was my first assistant trainer job. Um, wow. Also from England. He's such a brilliant horseman. Like I always remember some stuff he would do. His horses were super sound and they'd come off the farm and they were just like such great foundation in them. Um, so he was a good job and learned a lot there. It was my first real assistant job. So not just galloping. I learned a lot of stuff on the ground and, yeah, so he was a big part of it early on. What what things did you learn in working with Jonathan that are helping you even to this day? Just keeping horses happy and sound and just, you know, letting them develop. Like, Jonathan was brilliant at just having young horses, and they'd last a long time with him. And he'd, um, you know, he trained for George Strawbridge, so he had a lot of homebreds and really well-bred horses, and there wasn't a lot of claiming horses and he just, you could get to see him develop them and just, like I say, just get that foundation, fitness, soundness and yeah, just little, little tension to small detail and yeah, he was brilliant. How many years did you spend with Jonathan? Um, oof, not good on the old time frame, but <laughs> probably a couple years, something like that. I, I did... Gulfstream in the winter, I did Saratoga in the summer, I did Keeneland, like the spring and the fall. Oh, that, that's a tough to gig. That, that's really rough. <laughs> yeah, right. Avoided <laughs> the cold weather. <laughs> and I I never got to go to his farm, which I kind of wish I'd got there, but used to hear a lot of horror stories, too. He, he was hard work over there. <laughs> Not in a bad way, just he, you know, he got his money's worth out of everyone out there, and I... You know, I was just into the racetrack, so I never went to the farm. But I would like to have seen it. <laughs> yeah, how how did Jonathan approach his operation and his business and working with his assistants? What was his philosophy there? Um, I'd say just, you know, he moved horses around a lot. Like he from the farm to the track to, the, you know, he's a lot of time in that Pennsylvania area. He'd go to the Carolinas. He'd he'd move horses and where they would fit and he'd like to get them ready at the farm and those horses had been training up the hills and had, you know, a lot of strength and fitness and they'd come into the track and they'd, you know, they you couldn't just throw their head away and they'd go for a half a mile and come back to you. Those horses would drag you for a mile and a half. They were so fit and um, just happy horses. Yeah, that's the key. I've had so many trainers come on this program over the years and, and say patience and keeping horses happy is the key to being successful as a horse trainer. Do you agree with those two? Oh, big time. Big yeah. time, yeah. It's like I think back in the day they would spend a lot longer, you know, breaking and foundation and the horses were definitely tougher then and made a little different, I would say. But, you know, I believe in all that getting – taking your time getting them there and once they're there at that fitness peak you know you can just keep them ticking over but yeah Jonathan liked to get air in those horses and they <laughs> they were sound 
Now, Lauren, you spent time with Wesley Ward and Jerry Hollendorfer and worked with Todd Pletcher and Richard Mandela, who we mentioned earlier. We're going to talk about those experiences, too. We'll do that in the second half of the program. We've got to get to a short break. Stay with me. This is Trainer Talk presented by Fasic Tipton here on the Horse Racing Radio Network. Visiting with trainer Lauren Robson, fresh off of her very first career victory at Gulfstream last week. I'm back with more right after this. Nominate now for this year's Fasig Tipton Selected Yearling Sales. The July Sale. A strong market for precocious and athletic yearlings that attract the sport's leading end users. Last year, 40% of yearlings sold brought $100,000 or more. The 103rd Saratoga Sale. The crown jewel of American yearling sales, Saratoga set new sale records for the second year in a row, including the highest price yearling sold in the world in 2023. Ties upstairs, $4 million even. New York Bread Yearlings, the number one marketplace for New York breads, held during the Saratoga race meet. Selected sales, superior results. Visit selectedyearlings.phasingtipton.com to nominate now and rise above the crowd at our 2024 Selected Yearling Sales. It's time to get ready for the 2024 Thoroughbred season at Woodbine Racetrack, the number one turf track in North America. Season runs from April to December with over 62 million in purses with an industry-leading stakes program including two Canadian classics. The Grade 1 Million Dollar Rico Woodbine Mile and the Million Dollar King's Plate. Woodbine offers top safety rated racing and training services, plus world-class facilities. Make Woodbine your home turf this season. Learn more at woodbine.com. There are plenty of thrills at Gulfstream Park with live thoroughbred action Friday through Sunday and simulcasting seven days a week. Join us on track for weekend stakes races and make plans for opening day of the championship meet on Friday, December 1st. Dine trackside in 10 Palms with an elevated view of the track and grab a cool cocktail in the Carousel Club. For reservations, tickets, and more, head to GulfstreamPark.com. Well, Fazig's family, basically. Some of the guys that work here I've known for 30 years. I just felt really supported and they're, they're great communicators. They try to help in whatever you do. Phasic Tipton has a sale for every market, every segment in the industry. There's multiple opportunities where you're gonna have plenty of good buying and selling situations. Great customer service. I'm not only a buyer with them, but I'm a seller and I've always been well taken care of. There's a lot of different things that sometimes you need at a sale, and Phasic Tipton is there every step of the way. They show year after year that they're ethical and they're fair, and they enjoy what they do. But when you're around people that have a combination of all those things, you, know, you can't lose. This is Trainer Talk, presented by Phasic Tipton on the Horse Racing Radio Network. Rags to Riches is coming with a four-wide sweep, and Tiago is in behind them. And at the top of the stretch, a filly is in front of the Belmont, but Carlin is right there with her. These two in a battle of the sexes in the Belmont Stakes. 
It is Carlin on the inside. Rags to riches on the outside. A desperate finish. Rags to riches and Carlin. They're coming down to the wire. It's going to be very close. And it's going to be a Philly in the Belmont. Rags to riches has beaten Carlin. And a hundred years of Belmont history. The first Philly to win it in over a century. The legendary Tom Durkin with the call of one of the great moments in the history of the sport. Rags to riches, Curlin putting on a show at Belmont Park in the 2007 running of the Belmont Stakes. It was a tremendous moment for trainer Todd Putcher, who earned his first classic victory that day. And, uh, boy, she was some special filly. And nobody knows that better than my special guest, Lauren Robson, here on Trainer Talk, presented by Facing Tipton. Welcome back. Going to get back visiting with Lauren here momentarily after I remind you that if you missed any portion of the first half of the program, looking back on Lauren's first career win last Thursday at Gulfstream Park and some of the other stories that she told working with Jonathan Shepard and some of the greats in our game, all you have to do is head back to our website after we finish up here in about 30 minutes, and you can check out the podcast of this episode of Trainer Talk and all of our shows at horseracingradio.net. You can do that, too, on every podcast platform so however you access your podcast type in horse racing radio network and follow along each and every week don't forget too to follow us on social media at hrrn is our twitter page horse racing radio network on facebook youtube and on instagram lauren that moment right there i know was special for todd it was special for you too because you were close with rags to riches tell me about that yeah I was so lucky to get the opportunity to ride her when she came from California. I think Michael McCarthy suggested I get on her, which was really great for him. And she was just super special filly. Like, she'd already won some great ones out there. She was already a big name. So I just got to follow on from that. But she, um, just a hugely talented filly. Um, she was, she was nice to ride. She was forward. She's had that big stride that you have to not let her get rolling too much but she was pretty straightforward she was uh tough in her stall and kind of mean but i guess that helped her in the belmont she pinned those ears and had curling down inside johnny tightened them up and she she was tough as nails <laughs> yeah curling found out how mean she could be there's no doubt about <laughs> it she was take no prisoners that day and i remember that was our first ever truly national broadcast on the horse racing radio network in 2007 it kind of was the one that really um got us going and um boy what a way to kick off everything we've done here on the network with that performance by rags to riches yeah yeah that was super special what do you what do you Um, remember about watching the race where were you and and mm -hmm. (laughs) i'm sure you were jumping up and down and screaming and cheering around that was uh that was a long day getting to that race i remember going up to the grandstand and just kind of visualizing the mile and a half. And once Todd decided to run her in there, we had been kind of galloping her every day, wire to wire. And I just tried to visualize the race in my head and like, oh, she can do this. You know, she's, she's really talented and she was going against a good field, but she, she had the talent. So I was up there in the boxes actually with Leona and Johnny's wife, Leona and the kids, Michael was small Lynn and Lorena and uh, Angel Cordero was up there. Todd was a couple boxes down um, with the Coolmore crew and his wife. And um, wow, just 
a feeling, I don't know, if you could ever relive that moment, that was huge. What was it like galloping horses for Todd Pletcher? Todd is amazing. Just obviously great horses, which are fun to ride, but just super. Todd's just so organized, so smart. His mind's like a computer, and he's just, with that number, how he can pay attention to small detail and know every horse. Like, he he knew every horse he could ship in from a Monmouth, and he knew him like he would recognize every horse. And just so organized, so straight, um, just very, very level-headed and really fun to work for. It's easy to talk to. Um, just a brilliant program. I mentioned how special that particular race was for us here on the network personally because of of where things have gone after that moment in 2007 for us here on HRN. There was another moment for me personally that I'll never forget. I had an opportunity that the one time I got a chance to spend any significant time talking with Alan Jerkins, and it wasn't even all that long. It was a few minutes in the morning at Gulfstream Park, and I had asked him if he would be okay with joining me on this show, on Trainer Talk, um, at, at some point. And he said, yeah, just get a hold of me. We'll set it up, and we will do it. Well, of course, a few weeks went by, and a couple months went by, and then the news came of Alan Jerkins passing, and we never did get the opportunity to connect here on Trainer Talk. And that is still, to this day, one of my biggest regrets, is not having Alan on this show to tell his stories and look back on on his career, but you did have the chance to spend time with Alan Jerkins. Tell me about that. Yeah. So when I was working for Todd still at Belmont, Alan was across in the old barn with the, you know, with the jogging ring on the outside there. And I had heard about this legendary guy and I was like really curious. So I started to watch him and they told me, it's like, Oh, he goes out and picks dandelions every day around Belmont and he goes and picks them digs up the roots and gives it to the horses. And I said, man, I said, I'd like to meet this guy. He kind of was an intimidating character in the mornings because he had a lot going on. So I was driving in the back of Belmont and I saw him out by the soccer fields back there picking weeds. So I just pulled over in my car and I said, hey there, um, you need some help? And he looked at me and he's like, sure. So from then on, I was like his, little weed picking friends at the time he'd had a few different ones but i'd go picking weeds and he'd come come to the point that he'd get my own gloves and my little rubber boots when it was raining to go over my shoes and he'd call me lauren bacall and he'd say lauren bacall you ready and we'd go out rain or shine and yeah he just he would relax when he's out there and he'd tell stories and i'd pick his brain and he was really fun and sometimes we'd do it in the afternoon he'd go off in the golf cart then and he'd take his shirt off and he's drinking a beer and he just we'd go back to the bar to feed the daddy lights he'd be yeah just super relaxed so that was the time you could really hear his great stories such a legend yeah such a legend he's he is missed there's no doubt about it you also spent time with another legendary trainer who is no longer with us and that was bobby frankel yeah i galloped for bobby for a while and i was in saratoga a little bit in Keeneland. Um, that's one regret I kind of didn't do because I was galloping and I was set up to come to Saratoga for Shepherd um, when he arrived. I was supposed to work for him. And Bobby had said, you know, if you want to go down to Belmont when meet's on and kind of work, 
with the assistant, like be one of the assistants. And I, you know, I was kind of loyal to Jonathan, so I didn't do it. So I thought that would have been a huge thing if I'd done that. But Bobby was amazing, just attention to detail, big on keeping horses even, going even, so keeping them good behind. Everything else kind of follows, and horses looked amazing. His program, he fed well. Um, yeah, worked with him for a short time, and actually did get to work for Alan Durkins too one summer, which was something I thought I had to do before, you know, he was gone. And he, that was a great summer, just different style, and every horse was individualized. Um, yeah, a lot of fun. Alan Jerkins was big on creating that camaraderie uh, and the the team uh, element with those who worked with him, right? Wouldn't he do um, pick-up football games as well, like flag football games? Yeah, yeah. They'd say, and he'd play at some point, and he'd be out there. And I loved the guys at the barn. Like, he'd have a kind of a lot of characters over there and take him under his wig and um, the stories from back in the day. Like, I wasn't around, obviously, in his heyday, but, you know, just the stories you'd hear about him and, you know, how many people he helped and he enjoyed those characters and, you know, he'd want to motivate them and just, um, yeah, hang out in the evening. People would come around and he'd hand them a horse to graze or hand them one to hose down the legs or, yeah, just people were drawn to him and everyone wanted to ask him questions and he'd be so humble and he kind of would you'd say, well, how the hell would I know? But then he'd start to tell you a story, and the answer was kind of in there. So, great guy to, to you know, to try to learn from. And, and nobody could really follow him because he didn't have a program. He just would see something different, and he could change things up going to the track or on the track. And he'd be out waving at the riders to slow down or pick it up, and just a brilliant mind. How about the time you spent with Wesley Ward and Jerry Hollendorfer? Tell me about those years. Yeah, yeah, Wesley, different ball game from the people I had worked for. Um, you know, big with the two-year-olds, a lot of speed. Obviously, everyone knows Wesley for early fast horses. Um, Wesley's got a great eye and knows what he's got and where to point him. And, you know, his operation is just all about getting them ready early, going to Royal Ascot, which was, you know, his big part of the year. And, I just learned a different way of doing things, just how to get them ready early. And, um, yeah, he's he's very sharp, Wesley, and I appreciate that side, too, to have learned that from a Jonathan Shepherd, who's, like, known to be long turf, developing horses to Wesley, like, getting them ready. So I was happy to have seen that side of things also. Yeah, you have to feel, Lauren, like you could train any kind of horse right now, considering all of that experience. Yeah, I mean, I I enjoy the young horses, and either way, if they tell you that they're sharp early types, like you give them the opportunity to be that, and if they need the time, then, you know, take your time with them. Go forward, back off until they're mentally there and physically ready to go do it, but everyone enjoys a young, fast two-year-old for sure. How about Jerry Hollendorfer? Jerry's brilliant too, just, you know, he had some really great horses. He's like a little drill sergeant, but he <laughs> he was fun. He 
Zoe Cadman actually, I'm good friends with Zoe. I remember when I took the job and Jerry's kind of intimidating and Zoe said, you know, he just loves cats. She said, just get some cats and he'll be, he'll just melt. Like, really? <laughs> so we found this old cat at the barn and she ended up having kittens and we were there one morning and she's having all these kittens and he just was nuts about these cats and he just softened right up and <laughs> so it was funny to see that side of him but you know ran a great program you know very good at entering horses in the right places all different types and so that was another great guy to learn from and sharp just another one sharp yeah very... yeah and, and richard mandela too you spent time with richard yeah i galloped for richard when i went back out to california um you know kind of old school not too many horses just very hands-on attention to detail he could get in the stalls and chew a horse if he wanted to he could he was an amazing rider which i didn't see him do that much but i heard how good he was so you'd respect him in every way because there's nothing he couldn't do and again just a guy that could develop horses put that foundation you know you don't do it so much east here but he'd do those seven eight mile works and you kind of learn how to do that just get good air and timing um yeah, just had some really nice horses and just kept them around. Just very good at what he does. Visiting with trainer Lauren Robson here on Trainer Talk, presented by Fazek Tipton, fresh off of her first career victory as a trainer. That came last Thursday at Gulfstream Park when Gibran broke his maiden in a maiden claiming event under Hall of Fame jockey John Velasquez. It was a, a tremendous scene, and it's the first of many to come for Lauren. There's no doubt about that. Lauren, you're also involved on the ownership side, and the first horse that you ever owned was a horse named Notorious, and Notorious uh, was special to you for a lot of different reasons, including that first career win, which came at Santa Anita, and it sounded like this. On the far side, Notorious. Between them, Hot Lightning. Three of them almost in a line now. Four back to Zinvor in the fourth position. They are coming to the top of the lane. Notorious on the outside now goes up to take them on. Notorious goes looking for the lead with an eighth of a mile to go. Gets it and starts to inch clear now. Maddie's Tribal tries to battle back along the inside. But it is Notorious clear with a sixteenth to go. And Notorious and Kieran Fallon coming home to a comfortable win. Notorious wins it clear. Maddie's Tribal was second. Tough Sunday came out the clouds to snatch third and then Zinvor. Trevor Demon with a call, October 29th, 2014, 10 years ago, your first win as an owner. Um, how was that for a trip down memory lane? Oh, that was fun. Yeah, that brought back some great memories. It was really fun to get Kieran Fallon to ride him. At, you know, as a kid growing up, Kieran was amazing. He's King Kieran, like the Fallon factor. He was just a brilliant jockey, and that was fun also to have him ride my horse. And, um yeah, that was that was a huge win. That was Breeders' Cup week, and I had all kinds of friends like from Doug O'Neill's to everyone. It was a kind of a quiet grandstand until we all started yelling, and they were all yelling down to me. Everyone was really happy that day too. Um, so I had the horse with Jerry Hollendorf for a while. I was assistant, and um, kind of you know got him into the program with us. But it was like my horse, so yeah, that was that was really. A great win there. Yeah, he was a cowbred too, and you actually picked him out at the sale as a yearling, right? Yeah, 
I had started to work the sales and done some shortlisting at the Erling Sales, and so I was kind of in that mode and came back from Kentucky, and it was the Yearling Sale in Pomona out there. So I said, oh, I should try to buy something and maybe take to a sale. And So he's a big, flashy chestnut, and I just got him broke and got him started up in Bradbury. It was a small little place. It used to be the thoroughbred corp. So I'd go there after training and get him going and just kind of big, strong, heavy horse. And I said, oh, I'm going to ruin him if I take him to a sale. So I said, plan B, I'm going to take him to the races. And when I got the job for Jerry, I said, well, I have this horse and, you know, I'll probably sell him. He might not have him too long. He's like, okay, bring him over. So I was lucky. I had him in the barn and, um, yeah, he just, he, he kind of developed and we he won his second start that was the time in Santa Anita and, uh, yeah, so that was that, and then took him east with me then. <laughs> yeah, and you know, you mentioned John Velasquez being aboard for your first career winner with Gibran last week, but you had a pretty good jockey aboard Notorious when he broke his maiden, and you won your first race as an owner. Tell me about that. Yeah, just like Kieran was, was brilliant, so it was fun to get him, and he, he worked the horse with me one day, and he liked him, so that was a cool thing, but then I when I took the job for Wesley out in Saratoga, I said, well, Wesley, I have a Calbred. Like, it doesn't really make sense to bring him east. Wesley, typical Wesley's fashion, you know, doesn't worry about much. He said, just bring him, put him on the plane. He said, (laughs) no, we'll get him ready. We'll ship him back there. We can ship him back. And I had actually given the horse a few months off because he just wasn't 100%. I couldn't figure it out. So we gave him three months off and just got him together again and, so he's off a layoff. I'm in Saratoga, and it's the allowance race. And I'm like, wow, man, this is kind of crazy. $3,500 Calbred going to take on Godolphin, Shadwell, those types. But the horse was training good. I said, well, hope he runs well. And, you know, we could ship him back to the West Coast if he runs well and chose us to go for that Calbred race over there. But, you know, he... He came from last first. I had Jose Ortiz on him, and he rode him beautifully. I told him just take the time, like he's might just need one a little bit. And Jose rode him so patient, and he well passed everybody. And that was huge to win in Saratoga, especially with a cheaply bred Calbred. <laughs> yeah, I went back and looked at the chart for that victory in Saratoga, and there were names in there that. You kind of knew they turned out to be okay horses, but there was one name in there that he beat, which turned out to be a really good sprinter, and that was Bucaro. And Bucaro ended up finishing sixth in that race that day, six of seven. But Notorious looked unbeatable at odds of fourteen to one under Jose Ortiz. Yeah, yeah, no, that's funny to look back on that. Actually, I didn't even realize that that's so long ago. That's that's really funny um, to know that. Wow. Yep. Um, <laughs> very cool yeah no notorious was ready that day i guess more so than i thought i mean he was showing me some but he wasn't a big workhorse so i said well if you ride him the right way he probably can get a piece of it and he did what he did <laughs> is the plan now lauren to continue to own as many of the horses that you're training as you can or do you want to try and take on outside clients what's the what's the game plan going forward yeah, I mean, I'd love to get some outside clients. Um, hopefully, you know, kind of like-minded people that are 
you know, want to do right by the horses, whether they be early or later, and, you know, just try to get the best out of each horse. Um, I enjoy owning a piece. I mean, I own Notorious All Out, which, you know, I probably wouldn't do that too much now. I know the risks more, but um, I like to own a piece. Like Rudy always said he liked to own a third or a quarter, and then you can kind of, you know, enjoy it, but have a couple more than just owning one horse all out. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I really enjoy the sales. I've done a lot of shortlisting before, then I have some clients which I've bought for the last few years. I really enjoy looking at young horses and, you know, getting them to go through the program and get the right people involved, break them, or, you know, if they're from the two-year-old sale, just let them get back into, you know, training the right way, you know, back off, get going again and see what you got. And, um, yeah, but I enjoy owning a piece of some, but definitely would welcome some clients. Yeah, I always think it's good when trainers have a little skin in the game. If they own just a, a third or a quarter of a horse, it just, I don't know. I always think that that's a positive for any situation. Yeah, you got to think so because we're, you know, put our own money into it and, you know, try and get the best out of them, obviously. And you would do that for your clients and for yourself, but it's nice to get that chance to, you know, buy and sell a little bit and maybe you're sitting on a home run someday and you get that big horse and that would be amazing. Yeah. You said you want to try and stay small, maybe more boutique, and that way you can be the one that puts your hands on the horses every morning and gets a chance to get on them every morning and really get to know your horses. Uh, what's the optimal number, Lauren, that you would like to have? Um, for now, the first time, like if I could get 10, 12 would be good. I don't think I would ever want to go more than 25 or 30 or something like that. I don't think, unless the right team came about, but I just feel little by little would be nice but just to you know kind of get a team together I'm big on having great riders I mean I'd have to get more riders and work together that's big very important to me um have good grooms that love their horses and make happy horses you know when you treat them right they run really well for you and yeah let's see what happens yeah, see what happens indeed. Lauren Robson here on Trainer Talk presented by Fasig Tipton. Lauren, who are some of the other horses that you've had the chance to be around in your career, whether it be galloping or as an assistant trainer or whatever the case might be, those horses that hold a special place in your heart for whatever reason? Yeah, the other one which I owned, I had bought his yearling. I named him Canelo. And he I had a partnership with him. I broke him and had him at the farm. Again, wasn't really a pinhook type for the sale, so I thought I'd take him to the track. I sent him down to my friend Kent Sweezy, and we won with him here in Gulfstream, actually. And then I sold him off that win. Um, had to, you know, had a little time with him. He had the surgery in between races and did right by him, and he came back and he won nice for us here, and, you know, that was really fun also. Um, so... Those ones that, you know, weren't smooth sailing, but they rewarded you for your patience, that was really fun. Um, and, yeah, so that those type of horses 
you know, have a big place in your heart. And I got to, you know, gallop some other really nice horses, but Rex Rich is definitely the best one. And I don't think I could surpass that one. But <laughs> yeah, she's tough to top. Yeah. yeah. But there's other ones that, you know, just were fun horses and tried hard for every time. And you always appreciate those too. Yep. Lauren, I think we're down to about the final, oh, three and a half minutes here in the program. And in every trainer talk show, pretty much since we started. I like to end the program by asking trainers to let us know something about them that we haven't discussed yet over the past almost hour-long conversation. Um, So any other hobbies or interests or things that Lauren Robson enjoys doing outside of horse racing? (laughs) Unfortunately, nothing to talk about really there. I just, you know, when this job, and I don't really call it a job, but it's game is your passion i don't really have much time for outside stuff sometimes i think i should like get into yoga or something but there's not (laughs) enough hours in the day like i have two horses right now i could be here all day long i have machines i have magnum wave i have laser i work on my horses and once i get in the stall with them i could be there for an hour or two Uh, so yeah just the days kind of get away from you i mean we got the beach right down the street and i hardly get there and should do that um, but yeah, basically just with the barn, go home, hang out with Rudy. Um, this time of year is nice because you've got people here that just come for the winter. Um, so we go out for some dinners and stuff, but yeah, um, nothing else really. I mean, we went out on Johnny's boat a couple of times. It's been a bit of a cool winter here, so haven't got to do it much, but they were fun days just heading out, uh, on the boat, chilling, yeah. So I like to do that once in a while. Yeah, and I'm assuming it's just you right now with with only two horses, but as you get bigger, you're probably going to have to look at bringing in assistants and you know all the different grooms and all of the, the business side of training horses that you're going to have to worry about eventually, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, just good horsemen would be nice to have around, but yeah, uh, I had some really great grooms along the way and actually a guy that worked for Rudy. I'd love to get people like that. They're just hands-on guys that would, you know, live at the barn. They, they're they not in a hurry to get out of there, things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll just see, see if I can get some people to join my team when the need comes along. Yeah, yeah. Lauren, let me tell you, it has been a delight to look back on that first career win with you and to look back on some of your favorite career memories, talk about those legends that you had the chance to be around. Really appreciate the time and the visit here on Trainer Talk today. All the best going forward, and let's go win number two. Thank you so much. Hopefully it happens sooner than later, and we'll just keep working hard in the meantime. Keep it rolling, Lauren. Appreciate it. Lauren Robson here on Trainer Talk presented by Phasic Tifton. If you missed any of this show, you know what to do. Head back to the website, horseracingradio.net. You can listen to the podcast at your leisure. You can do that, too, on every podcast platform, however you access your podcast. For my producer, Lee Delapina, in our Lexington studios, I'm Mike Penna. Thanks for listening to Trainer Talk presented by basic tipping.